Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here today on New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies and New Books Literature. My guest is Lisa Bordetsky-Williams, who is the author of Forget Russia, a novel, published by Tailwinds Press in 2020. Um, thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us here on the podcast today. I'm delighted to be here, Stephen. So um, we're talking today with Professor Lisa Bordetsky-Williams, a.k.a. Lisa Williams, and Forget Russia by Tailwinds Press out in December 2020. You can also find information at www.forgetrussia.com. A little bit uh, about our guest. She's also published the memoir, Letters to Virginia Woolf, the artist as outsider in the novels of Toni Morrison and Virginia Woolf, and three poetry chapbooks. She's a professor of literature at Ramapo College of New Jersey, and she lives in New York City. So I have a lot of questions for you. Um, I wanted to start first, um, because this is a family memoir, if you would tell us what motivated you to go on this search. Okay, great. Wonderful. I actually was a Russian language and literature major in college, and I had this unusual opportunity in 1980 to spend a semester in Moscow at the Pushkin Institute. And what was super unusual about it is that I met many of the religious Soviet Jews at the time. Some of them were refuseniks, and they really changed my whole life. And one of my friends before I left said, do not forget us. Whatever you do, don't forget us. Um, they couldn't get out. They had already been refused. Um, or some of them, their parents had a secret job. And somehow their grandparents had really believed in the Bolshevik revolution. And Stalin had so destroyed um, their lives, basically. Either they were murdered or they were in gulags. 
So here were the grandchildren in a sense. So our meeting was so deep. And of course, my own grandparents came from Russia. Uh, one left right you know, before the revolution and one left uh, in 1921 when the Civil War was over in the Ukraine. So it was a very deep meeting. And I spent many, many years trying to sift through the, their courage and what they meant to me and the nature of journey. Because of course, there's so much journey going on in this book. So there's Anna going in 1980. There's uh, the grandparents having left. And then they go back in 1931, which I think is the most interesting part of the book. It's just all these multiple journeys and you know what journeys mean and how they're related to self-transformation. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you start there because I see a lot of these journeys as, as unexpected and full of hopes and dreams and illusions. Um, let's talk a little bit about the beginning of your book. So where would you say the story begins? Well, you know, right from the very first page, the first line is Anna's mother telling her, your problem is you have a Russian soul. She's, Anna's remembering that as she's boarding the plane to Moscow. So she's terrified in a sense. Um, she's aware of the family history that her own great grandmother was raped and murdered there. Um, and her grandmother, she sees before she leaves and she's like, good luck, you'll need it. So in a sense, the journey starts with Anna's, Anna's journey, but it's seen in relationship, there are three generations that it shifts to the grandmother's experience of living in the Ukraine and having her father desert her before, way before the revolution. A typical immigrant story he comes here, he promises to send for everybody, but he doesn't. He, he marries somebody else instead, has children with them. So Sarah's really all alone, basically deserts her and her mother. And, you know, Sarah's own mother being raped and murdered. Um, and somehow Anna is trying to understand this inherited violence and the nature of journey and what all these ancestors meant to her. Um, so it's, it's a multi, multi-generational kind of epic of journey and transformation and healing and healing. You know, what does it mean to have a hate crime in the family like that? And I think it's very relevant today because we hate crimes are on the rise and how does it affect generations afterwards? You know, the book really, my, my wish is to really make a very strong statement against hate crimes for anybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I see a, a lot of the, the kind of eras of, of imperial and national histories rolling through your stories and the generations and, and it's, it's a story of violence, obviously, um, the history of anti-Semitism and pogroms um, in Ukraine and Russia. Could you talk a little about your characters? Who who are they? Parents, grandparents, great grandparents? How did how did you go back and reach across these generational divides? Sure. I mean, what was so amazing is to make it this kind of multi generational. And I, you know, I've really been so deeply influenced by our very beloved. Toni Morrison, who says that we all need connecting to the ancestor roots us in self-identity. And so going back to the original ancestors, Lata, Anna's great-grandmother, who they, Anna, um, Zlata and Sarah, 
are in a, in a shtetl, Gornostipel, and the Ukraine during, um, right after the Bolshevik Revolution was very, very unstable, terrible place to be if you were Jewish. I did a lot of research. And of course, the white and Ukrainian nationalists and a lot of other uh, factions, they were trying to take control of the Ukraine away from the Bolsheviks for periods of time. They succeeded at that. And in the novel and in history, when the Bolsheviks were able to regain control, the defeated armies, you know, they went into these shtetls and they just massacred people. They blamed the Jews for everything. And I wanted to understand who these people were, like not just a statistic in a history book, you know, mm-hmm. 1921, terrible pogroms, 1919, terrible for Jews. Like who were these people? Who, what, were, what did their lives mean? Who was the great grandmother who has such a tragic and short life? Uh, her husband deserts her. And in the book, I imagine that she's really in love with him and just waiting to join yeah. him. Um, it's again, a love story. <laughs> yeah. And she's so devastated. Um, Sarah is deserted by her father and then is reunited because after that happens, um, Sarah's, she's basically orphaned in a sense. She father's far away and an uncle takes her in and she really bonds with the uncle. And he's one of my favorite characters, Uncle Shmuel. Um, mm. They, they just really bond. And he finds her father who's living in Roxbury, Massachusetts. The father's guilty. He sends for her. And so she takes her own journey. She's all of 16 years old and it doesn't work out the way she had hoped. She doesn't realize that he's remarried with children, two children. She's not welcome there. The stepmother doesn't want her there. It's too expensive. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so shortly after she marries a man 17 years older than her. So it's kind of this sense of each generation really struggling to make meaning and to overcome intense adversity and in a sense, uh, being caught in historical moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like that existential quality. There, there's almost a Viktor Frankl quality to oh, I love that book. each each gen and and Elie Wiesel. You know, this every generation is struggling to to find itself, and I guess every person within their relationships are, are struggling. Um, but I, I guess you know, I, I wanted to ask about your historical reconstructions. You're, you're reconstructing not only relationships, but conversations. And, and I would imagine conversations that, that took place both with, within languages and between languages. Um, so Russian, Yiddish, English, and, and so forth. How, how did you go about doing that in the characters that, that you build? Okay, great. That's a, that's a, a great question. And you know, when Anne is there in 1980, the people she meets speak pretty good English. But of course, she's speaking them sometimes in Russian. They want to practice their English. Their English is better than her Russian. Um, and I am really glad that when I got back, I actually wrote down all my experiences because it would have been very hard to recreate. And I wrote down the com- a lot of conversations that happened. And there were all these secrets. So she, her, her love interest, there is a love story, you know, he, she's there and he's got all these time magazines. And, and she says like, where'd you get these? Like, and he says, I can't tell you. And mm-hmm. that's constantly going on. He's, you know, his, 
the family takes her uh, to the to the Zagara, the kind of suburbs or whatever, uh, the countryside, and she sees all of Tolstoy there. He says, "I mm-hmm. all of Tolstoy's here. How'd you get that? I can't tell you." And I think that that kind of secrets um, and those conversations and and you know one of the things she doesn't agree with they completely disagree politically about everything. And, right. And I, and, <laughs> I love those quarrels. <laughs> and they they really it doesn't destroy their relationship. They just accept that we see the world differently based on our different experiences. And I think that is also thinking back on that how important that is. You know, yeah. uh, one point Yosef, which is her love interest, says, you know, you know, he's very excited about Reagan coming in and she's going to make everything great or everything's going to be wonderful. And she's like, oh, you're so conservative. And he's like, what does that mean? I don't even right. know what that means, you know. And I, I really wanted to kind of capture also, like, he's like a really true Russian Jewish intellectual. Like, I remember when before I went over, my professors were like, you better read all of current the, the papers inside and out. They're going to know it better than you. Um, this kind of sense of, you know, of a very towering intellectual. Um, I, I would say that, you know, he didn't, he had a, more time to like read everything. He just knew everything. He knew everything about Tolstoy, he knew everything. And that sort of, I think she's a, a very mesmerized, but sort of this towering, towering brilliance. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe read or at least talk about the 1931 moment. I, I think this is, in many ways, the unusual part of your family history and, and the multi-directional or maybe circulatory migration patterns. Um, as in 1931, a, a return to Russia, but a return really to what is the Soviet Union and, and Stalin during the first five-year plan. Um, so talk, talk a little bit about that. And, and maybe if you could, for our audience, um, read a little bit from your book. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, Leon and Sarah, they, they marry. And, you know, Leon, he, it's the height of the Depression. And this is based on my own family history. And I feel like this is the most unusual part of the book. They go back to Leningrad in 1931. I mean, actually, 10,000 Americans went back to the Soviet Union. Ford even had a, mo- a plant there. Um, and they, they have two children, ages five and three, they sell everything. This, with this, Leon has a great dream of going back. Sarah, she's, has a tragic relationship to the country. She, I imagine she's not too happy. Um, but I, uh, will read that moment when they come into the, sh- into Leningrad on the ship. And here it is. The ship approached the city on an autumn night in late September. The lights from the boat shimmered on the water. Leningrad, so beautiful in the distance, Sarah had never seen anything like it before. There were large cobblestone squares and faded yellow buildings, symmetrical in form and appearance. On the ship, she had overheard that the Tsar's palaces had become museums. Others said she would find statues everywhere of Lenin, Stalin, Pushkin, Zerzhinsky. She started to weep, not knowing why or where her tears came from, only that she had returned to her homeland and was not prepared for the feelings welling up within her. Once the boat entered the harbor, Sarah thought she heard her mother calling to her in the rain that fell softly, creating a mist over the city. On the ship, no one spoke. They just peered at the city in front of them. 
the pier widened in places where few people walked. From across the dock, Sarah saw a poster of Stalin in a long black coat and white button-down shirt and boots marching alongside a line of Soviet soldiers. And then the words, the realization of our plan. And I'll just stop there. Of course, the girls, five and three, are going to start speaking and complaining a bit. Like, are we there yet? Um, but, you know, I also really tried to imagine, you know, where they would live. And, uh, you know, in the book, Leon is able to make a connection with um, uh, his, his childhood friend who has stayed and who is a prominent leader in the Bolshevik um, party. So uh, he lives in a communal apartment. I did a lot of research into the living conditions and it would have been pretty tough, pretty tough. 20 families, one bathroom, <laughs> bed bugs. Um, you know, on the other hand, I also wanted to recreate that sense of excitement. There were a lot of young people who came. There were people from the Midwest. You know, it's the Depression in the United States. Um, they, they had a dream. They also felt like they could get work. And there were clubs. There were all sorts of things. There was even a baseball team in the Soviet Union. The Americans were teaching the Russians about baseball. They welcomed the Americans. There were black Americans who came to escape racism. You could actually get paid more um, at the Ford plant in the Soviet Union than in Detroit. And But the problem was if they didn't leave by like 36, 37, when the height of the purges happened, they were in big trouble. And um, younger people could deal with sort of the difficulties of just the, the living conditions much easier than older people. Uh, yeah. And so I was thinking about the, the romances and the love stories that you have in the story. Um, could you talk about romances, not just between people, but also of, of a place? And, and by that, I, I mean, obviously the ideological commitments that, that are there in the American dream and the Soviet dream. But, but why do you think there, there is such a, an attachment in, in that kind of way? How, how, do you, how do you work that out with your characters? I, I think all the characters are obsessed with Russia, which is why it's called Forget Russia. The reality is they can't forget it. They're obsessed with it. And I was really fascinated with that. And um, their kind of love for the country and the culture. And I, I mean, let's face it, Russians have the best literature in the world. <laughs> um, that's my own feeling. And I think that was also part of my own attachment to, um, to the place. Um, you know, Leon always wants to go back. But I also feel like I wanted to look at the larger issue. I do feel like all people, regardless of where they came from, whether it's they came or their parents came, their um, grandparents, great-grandparents, they have some attachment to that original place called home. And I wanted to really explore that. So I think each one you know, has a, um, a, a different kind of attachment to Russia, but they all are very attached to it and they can never forget about it. And, um, you know, even Sarah in her old age with her, you know, all the tragic connections with it, she somehow keeps herself alert and how she passes the time when she's old and blind and infirm is she's singing the Russian love songs from her girlhood. Um, and, Again, you know, it's based on family history. My own grandparents went back. They 
they dragged my mother and aunt ages five and three. I have the passport photos. I love, love to watch, to look at them. Um, but you know, just, yeah, that, that incredible attachment. And, and the only thing I didn't know a lot about their trip. So I did a ton of research, but I was told my grandfather never spoke about it when he came back, you know, Mm -hmm. that he always loved Russia. He he loved the Yiddish culture. He loved the folk songs. It was a place that he loved, like no matter what. And I think that everyone is kind of struggling with this intense connection to it, even if they're disappointed um, with what's going on there. They love, there's something that they love. And I, you know, I just think of Dostoevsky's characters kissing the Russian land and, you know, this kind yeah. of intense so, sense. It's, it's very romantic. <laughs> yeah, it is very romantic. I know. Um, but, but I, I guess with each, with each of your characters and, and here, I mean, especially the, the relationship in your grandparents' generation, they, they're, they're culture bearers, right? One would say almost Kulturtrager in, in German, um, they're they're carrying Russian language. They're carrying Russian literature, the classiki, and so forth. Um, how how did you create or recreate some of their conversations between the silences? Because I think the silences and the secrets are, are such a big theme in your book. I think secrets is a very big theme because, of course, Anna. She doesn't even know that her great grandmother was raped and murdered until like six months before she goes. And she's shocked. Why doesn't anyone talk about it? Why is it covered up? Um, And I think there's constant secrets there. And their grandmother is such an incredibly deep character, but she doesn't speak much. And you need to listen carefully to what she's saying you need to listen to the songs. It helps if you can understand what the songs mean, but you know, Anna can listen to those songs and the grandmother translates them for her and tells them what they mean. And if they're songs of unrequited love, um, and somehow, you know, just as with my own grandmother, I felt like she was telling me the story of her own life and maybe the story of her mother's life, whose husband deserted her and who, suffered terribly from unrequited love. And maybe there's an unrequited love for Russia. I don't know. I just thought about that now as I'm speaking. Um, So uh, secrets are everywhere. And one of the things she doesn't understand when she gets there, when she meets these incredible, um, you know, Soviet Jewish citizens who are so courageous and so amazing. And as I said, I understand now, they were pretty religious and pretty dissident-like, you know, because being religious was a big... wanting to practice Judaism was a big rebellious move. And it was an unusual experience that I had to meet them. And I got to meet them because one of the other students who came, um, his fiance had gotten out. She was a Russian Jew and she gave him all these addresses um, of the different Soviet Jews. So I got to meet them through him. And I was at the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and I do describe it. And, you know, a car came by, it was packed people were celebrating. And all of a sudden a black car comes by on the street and just intimidates everybody. And I was like, whoa, did I just see that? You know, <laughs> like, like, did that just happen? Um, people were constantly asking, did you meet Russians? Did you meet Jews? Um, I didn't really understand that. It's like, what? You're like, you can't. And I did understand by the time I left, if you're Jewish, you're not considered Russian. You're Jewish. 
that's really a big distinction. And that was just, um, just an, you know, an, an incredible learning experience. But secret, secret, secrets. Why couldn't I find out where the Newsweek came from? Why couldn't I find out where all the Tolstoy books came from? Because you couldn't get them in the bookstore. The only way you could get any of those books were with American dollars or foreign dollars um, in stores called Birioska. And I do have a, a scene where, where Anna goes to the Birioska um, and buys some uh, Akhmatova and Spadayeva and Pastodok. And, you know, this, she gives it to this guy and he's probably going to sell it on the black market. But, you know, he talks her into it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I really love the book, um, The Green Tent by Ludmila Ulitskaya, and I learned so much from it. Um, she's a contemporary, um, excuse me, Russian writer. Um, and she talks about like how the KGB operates. And I do have a scene at the end, sort of at the end of the book where Anna and her roommate um, get befriended by this lovely couple. They're at an art show and they, 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 they call them, um, invite them back to their home. They seem to be living better than everybody. They're so generous and gracious, so friendly. And um, then they start asking them these questions like, oh, you know, um, people practicing Eastern religion. And they're just like really friendly. And, and then they say, oh, who'd you meet? And of course, by this time, they're very young. They just like, oh, yeah, we've met a lot of Russian Jews. Then, you know, think, then they, they say, I'll oh, come back soon. We, very friendly, very wonderful. She calls them up. They never return the phone call ever, ever, ever. And her roommate says, oh, they were KGB. And Anna says, oh, you're just negative. And then she calls, calls, calls. She realizes, I guess they were. <laughs> There's a reason why they're not returning my phone call. There's a reason why they never want to see us again. And she slips. I met a lot of the Soviet Jews. Uh, and she's like, oh, my gosh, no wonder no one tells me anything. <laughs> I didn't mention any names. But I think that's a really profound moment of how that's all operating. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that, that was one of my questions for you, Lisa, as well, because it, it seems for every one of your generations, there there's a coming of, of age story. And certainly 
I would say in your own autobiographical experience, there must be one without putting words in your mouth and in, in, in 1980 going there um, on exchange and, and staying. Um, I, I'm, I'm particularly interested in how you interweave 1980, the late Brezhnev period with 1931, with the, the expectations and then maybe the disappointments that, that follow. Um, could you talk a little, a little bit about that, you know, as a, as a coming of age story, but it, certainly there's a class element to this because the people who come to America, I would imagine, you know, don't have PhDs. The people who go back, um, Leon in 1931 with his wife are, are going to become factory workers and textile workers in the Soviet Union. So how, how do you get at that story? Okay, great. Um, you know, in some sense, the 1931, which I do think is the most, you know, unusual part of the book, um, you know, they're going back because, with, well, Leon is because of this great dream as a working person to build this utopic state, this first communist revolution that's happened. Um, and he sees himself really identifying as a working class person. He's a master carpenter. He's physically like super strong. Um, and he does make a, an important contribution when he's there. He does, he, he's making an important contribution with his own background. Um, and of course, you know, Sarah wants, she's, she's just online trying to scrounge up some food. The living conditions were so difficult there. Um, 1931, you have collectivization, you've got the peasants from the U Ukraine coming into Leningrad just to find food. Right. Um, famine, first five-year plan. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, it was so difficult. And, you know, Leon's like, it's going to get better, it's going to get better, just hang in there. And Sarah's like, this is really tough. And the, the children get whooping cough. You know, in a sense, Sarah becomes this kind of unassuming hero of the story she seems in her own quiet way to foresee the future. And so, you know, I think that, and, you know, they're very, very different. So Sarah is suffering so much with this terrible loss of her own mother with a brutal hate crime. She's really scarred by it. Leon also had a hate crime in his family. So he came before the revolution and his father owned a tavern um, and he had many brothers and sisters and he was robbed and murdered. And he felt the murdered part was definitely because his father was Jewish and nothing ever, you know, came of it, um, in terms of, uh, punishing anyone for it, but he wasn't scarred. So the book really looks at that sense of like one inherited trauma. I think Anna's trying to work that out, but you know, why do people respond so differently to trauma? You know, why is Leon not scarred and why is Sarah very scarred by it? and suffers from depression, you know, a lot of her life. And um, I think the other thing about class is that when he's there, you know, Leon just proudly identifies himself as a working class person and wants to contribute to the worker state. He starts to realize that, you know, his father really was a small business owner. He owned a tavern. And I think in one of the sort of more, you know, amusing, I, I love the part where I, the kids take over the tavern, actually. The father's dead. Um, he's had a mother and a stepmother die of illness. So they're sort of really orphaned and they take over the running at the tavern, um, which I, 
is kind of wild. But he, he begins to think maybe the Soviet state would not see him as so true blue or true red um, worker. And he gets a little worried based on what he's seeing going on. And of course, it's their premonitions of, of these purges that are really going to happen, you know, 1936. I, I mean, I love the parts where you're actually recreating dream sequences. And I mean, no, no historian in the sort of, you know, scientific or pseudoscientific way that, that we do history dares <laughs> um, to have that, that kind of what you might call projection or transference, at the very least, the, the use of our imaginations to recreate, recreate scenes and sequences. Um, it's very curious how you do this as, as a literature professor, if I can ask you to put on your um, lit prof hat and, and your teacher hat, because when when you do this with your characters, um, I, I get the sense that that you're interpolating and, and you know, you, it is based on a true story, but yet it, there's something very, very deep and very therapeutic about that and, and to move your readers forward. Could, could you give us maybe some some hints, some tricks to the craft and, sure, and how, you, sure. how you begin to do that? I mean, as a literature professor, I mean, I love, obviously, I love books and literature. And I always feel like a great book helps us understand what is it like to be alive in a certain time period? Like, the, just what's it like to be alive? Like, that's a great book. So, you know, I did so much research. So, you know... But I have to, but because it's a novel, it's the people, you know, what was the, what was a bathroom like? What right. were the living conditions like? How, how, did, how did that, how did that potato taste? Right. <laughs> right. You know, what was it like in the communal um, kitchen? And, you know, what also like Sarah, you know, she never really, she had to work in a factory. She, you know, she did suffer from depression, but before she went there, she was home with the children and, you know, really fighting a sense of melancholia. Um, and, you know, also when I was there in 1980, like I was really, obviously the living conditions were much better in 1980 compared to 1931, um, th though there were severe, severe shortages um, there. But the women I met, I mean, they or the parents, you know, the mothers of the, the, the young Soviet Jews I met and other Soviet citizens, you know, they worked, they waited online three hours a day. Uh, they were exhausted. Uh, one of the refrains in the book, Yosef, one of her, her love interests uh, says, you know, the women all grow old here. They all grow old. And it, it's very interesting because this is based on family history. My mother always said to me, your grandmother was always old. She was always old. And I, I really began to think deeply about that. I remember when I was there in, in 1980s, people said, we don't want feminism here. It's, uh, it's the women do everything. They, yeah, they got the rights to work all day and, you know, uh, clean and cook and wait online for three hours. They're exhausted. And I said, that, that's not feminism. <laughs> we need to re re rethink that. But I, I would say, I mean, I think what my book does is, um, you know, because it's incredibly researched, it will give readers like a sense of just what what did things smell like? What did they taste like? What was it kind of like alive to? What was it like to be alive then? You know, who were these? Who were some of these people? Only it's just, you know who were these people? 
Mm-hmm. What were their dreams? I, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I would ask you maybe if, if you could read part of the 1980 um, section that, that you have in your book. I, I think a lot about the late Brezhnev era. There's so much interesting work now um, being written on the boom generation, so-called, or, or the revisiting the epic of, of stagnation, so-called. Um, I, I mean, when I was a student, I remember reading Baranskaya and, and, and thinking about her short stories and, and novellas and women's everyday life. Um, so, so perhaps your impressions from when you were there, I guess, because you were actually there in, in 1980 um, and, you know, around the, the Pushkin Institute and, and gaining experiences and insights into Russian life. Sure, sure. And I would say that um, the people I met were so gracious. I mean, they just were. So I, I'm describing this kind of Friday night Sabbath dinner. So they invited, you know, many Americans, lots of friends, and it was very festive. And of course, the, the Americans could never keep up with drinking with the, with the <laughs> Russians. But um, so I just start off with a little description. They were the grandchildren of the Bolsheviks. They were disappointed, betrayed, religious, and rebellious. They were outsiders. Their ancestors were revolutionaries who had been murdered or sent to Siberia. So they studied Hebrew, came to the only synagogue for holidays, tried to leave the country if they could, and welcomed the American students to their homes. And here it starts. In a kitchen in Moscow, women gathered, peeling carrots into a large bowl. Onions were chopped one by one, and the smell of potatoes baking filled the room. Nadezhda wore a long flowered apron covering her dress. She kneaded the dough before dropping it into a pan to sizzle and cook, oil popping all over. Nadezhda let the water run out of the tap until it splashed everywhere. She scrubbed the remaining carrots. She cleaned and prepared. Her dinner a welcoming party for the Americans this Sabbath evening. Only two days had passed since we met them at the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah. The hair on Nadezhda's legs were fuzzy, friendly hair roots breaking open beneath her beige nylon stockings. Her movement spoke of longing, humming far into the night. Women filled this kitchen. Some washed, others peeled or scraped, sliced or chopped the vegetables. And, you know, it will go on where the Nadezhda is a refusenik and she's, you know, Mm, asking right. Anna all these questions. How much do apartments cost in America? Of exactly. Course, you know, like that's a, like, well, it depends where, you know, um, you know, and just this kind of, she does eventually get out, but a long time has this, the, she gets, the Soviet Union has to, has to fall. And all these people never thought they get out of there, get out. Um, mm-hmm. And no one ever thought the Soviet Union would fall. I thought that was so fascinating. So, you know, Anna's constantly hearing this sense of doom, you know, what will be when Brezhnev dies? What's going to happen to us? It's going to get worse. We're going to see a resurgence of Stalinism. And, you know, looking back on that, no one ever thought, ever, ever thought the Soviet Union could fall. And the fear, I think that's what really hit me when I was there is how afraid everybody was. And they just lived with it. And it had to do with, you know, starting off with their grandparents either being murdered or sent to Siberia. Mm -hmm. And just Mm -hmm. this kind of fear that just was also going down the generations you know, and, and Anna's trying to understand what it means, what does inherited trauma mean and how she can heal from it. So they have a lot to teach each other and to share with each other, even though their experiences couldn't be more different. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, as a historian, um, talking again to a lit professor, I, I, I wanted to ask you about that multi-generational inherited trauma. I, I think in many ways, historians, especially academic historians, tend to think that we can achieve, you know, reconciliation or, or working through Vergangenheit's Bewältigung, coming to terms with the past by, by doing more pedagogy, by writing more books, writing more mem- monographs and things like that. But I get the sense that your um, attention to detail leads you in a slightly different direction. And by, by that, I mean recapturing the, the silences and secrets and, and traumas and songs and foods. Um, did you think about that consciously as, as you were researching this book and, and reading about the, the 1930s and, and especially the, the history of Russia and the Soviet Union? Well, you know, certainly, um, you know, when I was there in 1980, the foods made a very big impression on me. I mean, there was a tremendous shortage of food. I remember when I went to the supermarket for the first time, I was completely freaked out. There was like, it was just cans. I was like, where's the food? Um, and so I was very touched by, you know, all these people who had so little, how gracious they were and how they gave everything. A, a, a graciousness that's unbelievable. So I also, you know, in researching 1931, uh, it was very bad. There were famines breaking out across the country. I actually met um, someone who um, parents went to the Ukraine, if you can imagine, in 1931, who was the exact same age as my mother. I um, went to his house. I uh, interviewed him. Uh, Again, he was only five years old. But he said they didn't stay long. They, They didn't stay more than a couple of months. It was really bad. Like there was like no food um, mm-hmm. in, in the Ukraine. It was not a good place to go then. Um, they came all the way back. So also, um, but you know, I really uh, researched in 1931. There again, just like in 1980, I, I will admit, you know, I sometimes went into stores because I was hungry and I just used my American dollars to buy some better food. Um, I just couldn't live on potatoes, and, you know cheese like you know, yeah three meals you a day you, you weren't the only one who did that yeah. I, I can I, was, I can assure you I was hungry but also even in 1931 there were certain stores that you know mm-hmm. you could some people could get into um you know based on foreign currency you know based on maybe selling some jewelry to or something to get them the coupons or whatever to get in um I think food, just from the research, just 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 must have been so incredibly difficult to get hold of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on the other hand, I, in, in 1980, I, you know, Anna just like the bread and the beets and, you know, I, in what I just read, there's a very clear attention to food and the mm-hmm. preparation of food. Um, you know, in 1931, there's a communal kitchen and Sarah really kind of wants no part of it. Um, but you know, Leon is like, it's good for you. You, you gotta like socialize a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and also she befriends a woman who, you know, I did a lot of research into 1931. Um, Mary leaders, my life in Stalinist Russia is an unbelievable memoir. And, you know, she, in this story, um, Mary and her parents, she's 16, and they're in Santa Monica, which is very beautiful. They're reading the Yiddish dailies, 
telling about Birabajan, um, mm. which is, and yeah. that it's, it's like another story. Amazing yeah. there, right? And they, they right. go all the way there. Um, it's, it's just mud and they can't grow anything. There's no running water. And, you know, just to make a, a long story short, eventually they, her daughter comes to Leningrad. The parents join her. She joins, you know, she's, she's 16. She finds it kind of exciting. She's in clubs and this and that. And she joins, uh, she becomes a Soviet citizen because she's encouraged to. And the parents decide to leave. They love the place, but they just feel too old. She can't get out. And mm -hmm. 40 years go by before she ever sees them again. Um, mm -hmm. I really wanted to look at that moment of uh, hope and difficulty and an impending doom of 1936 to 1938, these, these, these purges mm -hmm. that just, you know, people mm -hmm. just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, in, in terms of 20th century agency, because it not, not everybody who is a, a migrant has an equal degree of, of agency, and, and especially those who are, let's say, multiple migrants. And um, I see this as a big theme in, in your book. And, and maybe you could talk about some of your literary inspirations. Um, how, how do you see women's agency throughout the story in, in the characters that you're telling, um, not just your grandmother, I know, because you, you have a protagonist and you have a heroine perhaps, um, but, but how do you measure that? How do you begin to study the, the amount of, of choice or, or perhaps lack of choice that's there? I think that's a really interesting question because you're thinking about it. I think all of all the women characters struggle to create agency for themselves in their different circumstances and in their constrained circumstances. In fact, I would say all the characters in the book are struggling for agency, but you know, thinking about the women, um, it is a coming of age story for Anna. And I think by that journey and the people she meets, she develops essentially a healing. And in a sense, I do believe in what Toni Morrison says about the importance of connecting to the ancestor in terms of one's own self-identity. Um, you know, Sarah, in her own quiet way, has tremendous agency. She's strong, even though everyone sees her as fragile. She's both. Mm, that's but a great she's point. Stronger. She saves the family. And I think the question that I like to ask people reading the book is: many families have someone that maybe is an unlikely hero in the family that people have overlooked. Maybe, you know, to look into your own families, who are those un unexpected heroes? But I think everyone there is trying to come into agency. And even, you know, the women in 1980 who feel like it's so hard being a woman with the, the, the cleaning and the, you know, the lines and the full-time work. And they're kind of like, they're kind of major matriarchs, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They, they function, they're like doing everything. Um, this, and many of them are single mothers. The fathers are, you know, are not around, divorced. Um, and they, they don't seem to be like that around. Mm -hmm. um, or, or, or maybe distracted, if, if that's a fair word. I mean, I think Leon, it, it seems to be distracted, or at least he has a very different understanding of his childhood and his ideological role in, in life, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Leon's a fascinating character um, because 
and he really is a counterpoint to Sarah. And again, looking at why do people uh, experience trauma so differently, but also, you know, just he's just loves the Soviet Union so much and loves Russia and feels such a pull to go back and wants to go back. And he feels that it will help his depressed wife. Mm hmm which it doesn't at all. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but he thinks this is the answer to her depression. And it's very hard for him. You know, I'm really trying to look at that. He's, he doesn't really understand her. It's hard for him to get it. And it's mm -hmm. hard for Sarah not to be gotten. They, they don't work well together. Um, mm -hmm. They're, you know, he's a much more, you do what you got to do, and you move on. And Sarah is so deeply, deep feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the very fact that you have two people together who, who each have the murder of a parent, I think is an, an extraordinary story. It's, it's many ways. It's a wonder that they can agree on anything. Um, and, and I thought about that as, as I was reading toward your ending, because, you know, ultimately you don't end in, in 1980 or with the collapse of the Soviet Union, but you have an epilogue without spoiling it um, where you yourself return or you, you go back as a literature professor, I think in 2005 or 2006. Um, I, I wonder if, if you as, as an adult self, <laughs> um, after writing this and spending 20 years and, and going through your own process of, of self transformation could reflect about the story of, of, of antisemitism and, and violence. Um, how, how do you read that? Is it a, a Ukrainian thing, a Russian thing? I mean, Ukrainians don't like to be you know, sort of described as people of the Ukraine, but I think in many ways your your story is is unique. And how do you how do you see that? Yeah, I mean, I do feel like Russia has long been a, a very tragic place, um, and Jews have not fared well there. Through, not just in the Ukraine. I mean, they were limited to the pale, but the all the even just this kind of question being there in 1980 I, uh, at one point uh and this did happen to me i, I was uh accompanying my roommate who, who wanted to stay a little longer so she had to get a, a extender passport or whatever and he says you know where are you from and she says new york oh there are more jews there than even americans or something and she's just like shocked you know that there's a very long history of anti-Semitism, you know, that's very particular to Russia. I think, um, you know, Natan Sharansky, who does not like Putin at all, says it's a, it's a little better now. But I, uh, but he's you know, Putin's not a good guy, um, clearly. However, I always feel like when you have that kind of history, just like we see in our own country, this terrible history of racism, just things might feel better. We have, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like out there, it's just out there. And like we're experiencing right now, I feel the same way, like that kind of sense of anti-Semitism there. Like it's just part, I mean, when you, I, I really have a strong memory of being in this, the synagogue or outside the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah and that car coming by, that's just not something that I've ever had an experience. I was really shocked. And I was shocked that learning Hebrew could like, you know, land you in jail or land you in tremendous uh, intimidation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, to, to sort of say, you know, one line to this, I sometimes think, 
what is it that motivates people after experience of hatred and violence and racism to leave, to actually decide, make that choice to pick up everything and, and leave? And, you know, certainly I would say a lot of people, not just in the past several years, but but in the history of the long 20th century have considered that. And, and, and your book is a, an extraordinary investigation into that because um, it, it's actually to come to a decision that something may be at an end, even though another thing might be um, beginning. Um, and, and I guess with that, I, I'd like to ask you, since I, I've said too much, um, if you could recommend to our, our listeners here at New Books Network, um, some of the things that you're that you're reading or that you're interested in perhaps uh, even working on. Oh, sure, sure. Of course, I love Dr. Zhivago so much. And I feel like I only love that novel more and more as time goes by. Um, I'm reading this unbelievable book by George Saunders, who it's called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. He's one of our top short story writers. And actually, he identifies five 19th century Russian short stories that he feels influence his entire writing. Um, you know, he's a man booker. Uh, award winner. I just thought that was so fascinating. So I'm going through that and he takes them apart why they're so perfect. Why reading Chekhov and Tolstoy's short stories? Well, you have to you have to read them and understand how they're put together in order to write a short story. And, and that's how he teaches his masterclass based on these stories. Um, and I just read Cast um, by Isabel Wilkerson. And I think it's so such an amazing book. And I thought it was fascinating how she researches how the um, architects of the Nazi regime looked at American uh, slavery and the Jim Crow laws to put their own um, genocide uh, together, system of, of genocide. Um, and, I, and I do feel like what I'm trying to say in this book, of, and I think that people who have been terrible victims of hate crimes make they they are they so many of them devote their lives to trying to eradicate it right we're seeing a moment and i do feel my book speaks to like a larger sense of refugees um you know thank goodness my my grandparents were let in this country a larger sense of what does it mean to leave your home as you said there's an amazing um poet warson shire um and she says you know in one of her poems, um, one doesn't leave home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You know, really ex exploring that kind of pain. She's a contemporary poet who um, lives in London. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think those, those are all issues that I'm really interested in. Um, and of course, as I said, the poetry of Akhmatova, um, there's, I, I, I recommend, um, the book by Mary Leader, My Life in Stalinist Russia, to understand that time period more in many historical books I can recommend. Um, it's just, oh, and I love Ludmila Ulitskaya, her book, The Green Tent. And um, I actually start the book with a quote when she asks, asks you know, the story of people destined to meet is just such an important story. And I guess I feel like there is a, a questioning of destiny in the story. You know, and I feel like the historians look at everything that's going on and then the novelists look at why, 
how, like what did it feel like? And that sense of this, you know, why do people then meet each other? What is the destiny? What is the nature of destiny? Um, so I think mean, the book, which is why it took me so long, um, you know, ask these kind of large questions. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and I think that's a great place to end um, in, in talking about destiny. It's almost a taboo in the historical profession. You know, we um, not the royal we, but but sometimes I hesitate to to draw those lines because I I don't want to believe in determinism. It, it has to be more about accident and contingency and and chance. And and I think. Um, there are some magnificent chance encounters of, of, of your in your book in your novel, and I really hope people will will read it, um, Lisa. So it, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today on, on New Books Network. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. We've been speaking with Lisa Bordetsky Williams. She is the author of Forget Russia, a novel. It is published by Tailwinds Press in 2020, and you can find more information about it and her at www.forgetrussia.com. Thanks again, Lisa, so much. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's been really great. And I'm your host here on the New Books Network, Stephen Siegel. Until next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.